0: Well, good morning. Am I understanding correctly that it's Parents' Weekend at Messiah? We've got a few parents with us. Awesome. Glad to have you. We're going to be in John chapter four today. If you got your Bibles, you can turn with us there. We're in a series in the Gospel of John. So, guys, imagine with me uh, that you had had a crush on a girl for a long time and really been wanting to ask her out. And it took you a while to work up the nerve, to work up the courage. I mean, this is like, this is not just any girl. This is like a woman who is a woman to be deeply respected and revered. She's awesome. You've had this crush for a long time. And you finally work up the nerve and you ask her out. And can I say that you should do the one, be the one doing the asking and not by text message. Somebody say amen. amen. The older generation, let us just pass that to you, younger generation not by text message. Okay, girls, the answer if a guy asks you out by text is what? No, that's exactly right. Just consider it, your pastor said it, therefore it goes, all right? So just imagine that you've worked up the nerve, you finally asked her out, And then, you know, you've saved up some money because you know she loves Italian food and you know there's this good Italian food restaurant. Uh, And so you thought, I'm going to take her there. It's going to be a special first date. I'm excited about this. And so, you know, you saved well and you take her out on the date and things are going well. You're as charming as you've ever been. It is going swimmingly. Things are good, right? And then, you know, things are great. You have dessert. And then the bill comes and you have an oh no moment. And the oh no is not that you didn't have enough money, you've got enough money, but the bill came and you have to pay in euros. And you're completely confused. Is this not Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania? What is happening? Why is this bill in euros? And you're astounded, and now you're a little bit frightened, and you're also embarrassed because you didn't know that this Italian restaurant required you to pay in something other than good old American greenbacks. And so in this moment, You think to yourself, what am I going to do? Well, what's going to happen is you're going to get your date an Uber home and you're going to do some dishes is what's going to happen, right? Now, that would be an embarrassing moment, yes? It would be an embarrassing moment, but it wouldn't be so dangerous or deadly. But there is a type of insufficient currency that is dangerous and deadly, and it's actually what our text in John chapter 4 is about today. You see, we're not going to talk about money. What we're going to talk about is the currency of faith. And what faith is meant to purchase for us before God. And that there's a type of currency, there's a type of faith that is sufficient to purchase before God, the thing that it's intended to purchase. And there's a type of currency that's insufficient. And what I want as your pastor is for you to not be caught with a bunch of euros when it comes time to pay the bill. Or maybe I should say it the other way. It worked the other way, didn't it? You needed the euros in my story. Sorry. You get my point. I don't want you to be caught with the wrong kind of currency when it comes time to pay the bill. Look with me at John chapter 4, and we'll read this story and talk about what Jesus intends to teach us here. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43 and reading through verse 54. Now, if you remember, last week we saw this great conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus was moving from Jerusalem in the southern part of his country up to Galilee in the northern part of the country, and he went through Samaria on the way, and he had a conversation with this woman about faith and about worshiping in spirit and truth, and we saw that Jesus is interested in creating worshipers who worship God in spirit, And in truth, what Chris talked to us about as we were beginning to engage and worship, the kind of people who enter into the presence of God and say, I'm worshiping God out of the fullness of my relationship with him, out of this fullness of assurance and joy that I have in having him, that I worship from that place, not just from a place of worshiping outwardly, but I worship inwardly. And he's had that conversation. Now he's gonna continue his journey into Galilee and we're gonna see another experience that our king had and what he did in that experience. So beginning in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Would you pray with me? So Lord, this is your word, and we've read it now, and we pray that you would allow it to sit over us in authority. Would you guard my mouth to teach what is true and right and helpful, and would you make us able to receive what you have to give us today? Lord, you know my prayer for my people, that you would save them Save us from insufficient faith. Draw us into sufficient faith. Show us the difference between the two. Help us to understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so I said, I think this text is about the idea that insufficient faith is a dangerous thing. And let me tell you why, you know, I mean that. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know is there such a thing as insufficient faith? I thought faith was just faith. You believe or you don't believe. Isn't it just as simple as that? And I want to help you see that there is actually a type of faith that saves and a type of faith that doesn't save. Now, the first thing we need to understand is that faith has an objective. Faith biblically has an objective. We are told that faith is aimed at salvation. It's aimed at reconciling us to God. And there's a type of faith that does that. There's a type of faith that reconciles us to God. And there's a type of faith that does not Do that. Think about texts like Matthew 7, verse 21, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What did we just see there? A type of faith, a faith that calls out, Lord, to Jesus, and yet Jesus says that faith, whatever was in that, was not sufficient to bring about your entrance into a reconciled relationship with God. In other words, a faith that is insufficient to accomplish the aim at which faith aims, which is salvation, to be reconciled to God. We can think too in the Gospels when Jesus talks about how the demons relate to him, that they know that he is who he said he is, that he is the very son of God. He said even the demons believe that he is the son of God and what do they do? And they shudder, they cower in fear, but we're not meant to be given the impression there when Jesus says that that the demons have somehow now come to a faith that is sufficient to saved. There's a type of faith, a type of belief, but it's a type that for some reason has not led has not been sufficient to lead to salvation, reconciled relationship to God. Do you follow what I'm, what I'm saying here? So this is the first thing I want you to see, is that there is such a thing as insufficient faith. Now, let's dive into the story a little bit, and I'll show you why I think this is about insufficient faith. At first glance, we might be tempted to think this is about something else. In fact, this is one of those moments that happens in the gospel where Jesus' words and Jesus' actions don't seem to line up. Did you notice that? I mean, in one, in one moment, we have Jesus saying, hey, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. In other words, he's kind of saying, you want signs and wonders for me, and that's not good. And in the very next moment, what does Jesus do? He heals the boy, right? And you're thinking, wait, wh- I'm confused. What are you doing? This would kind of be like if I said to my kids, uh, or if my kids said to me, dad, we will do our chores when you take us to the movies. Now, if that's gets said at my house, that's not going to go well, okay? But if they said, Dad, we will do our chores when you take us to the movie and not until you take us to the movie, I would then say to them, no, that's not how things are going to work in our home. You'll do your chores. But then what if I, in the very next moment, said, do your chores. Okay, now go get in the car. Let's go to the movies. The kids would be completely confused. They'd say, wait, what? You told us this is not good, but now you're taking us to the movies. It's a little bit disjointed when we first read this text and we think to ourselves, wait, what is Jesus doing that he seems to be talking and saying, this is not good, that you need signs and wonders, and yet then he provides a sign and a wonder. Well, the text gives us us a couple hints right at the outset about what Jesus is up to. And what Jesus is up to is he's wanting to do two works of healing, not just one. He doesn't just want to heal a boy physically. This text isn't just about his mercy, but praise God that it is about his mercy. Praise God that he shows his mercy. It's not just about his power to heal when he's not even physically present with the boy. He can heal him. We learn something new about Jesus' healing power. They certainly learned something new. They would have believed he's been able to heal. We've seen it. He's been able to heal when he's put his hands on somebody or when he's been right there. He can even heal From 20 miles away, that's how far Cana and Capernaum are from one another. About 20 miles apart. So certainly we learn about the power of Jesus. Certainly we learn about the mercy of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just want to heal a boy who's on the verge of death physically. He wants to heal a father and a group of people who are on the verge of death because of insufficient faith. Let me tell you why I think that's the case. Look at verse 43 again. The first thing that happens in this story is we hear after two days, he departed for Galilee. Okay, so we remember from last week that he's on his way from Jerusalem up to Galilee, so he's just continuing the journey. That's all verse 43 tells us. He's moving on up from Samaria into Galilee. But then the very next sentence tells us something really interesting. It's a parenthesis. So it's for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown Okay, that four at the beginning of the verse is really important because what it's telling us is how the two verses are linked. You see, in verse 43, we're told he's going to Galilee. And in verse 44, we're told why he's going to Galilee. That four could also be translated because. In other words, what this text tells us is Jesus is going to Galilee because a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Where is Jesus' hometown? His hometown is Nazareth. It's in Galilee. So he's going to his hometown, and he's not going in spite of the fact that he won't be honored there because a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. He's going because he's not going to be honored there. Do you see the difference? Jesus is intentionally going to a place where they will not understand who he is. They will not regard him as he should be regarded, and he's going there for that very reason, Then we find something a little confusing. Follow with me into verse 45. In verse 45, we are, so, and again, in other words, that's another because. He's going to Galilee because he won't be honored there. And because he won't be honored there, he walks into Galilee and what does it say happens? The Galileans welcomed him. Now I'm thoroughly confused, right? Okay, you're going to Galilee because you won't be honored there. And because you won't be honored there, you get welcomed there. Wait, what? Is anybody with me that that's a little confusing? And then we're told why he's welcomed at the end of verse 45. Look at what it says. The Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. In other words, what the text is telling us is the Galileans are welcoming him because they've seen him exercise his power, and they're really interested in that but they're not all that interested in him. They really like what he's done when he's worked miracles, but they're not sure they're interested in him for who he is, and therefore their welcome of him could probably be put in quotes, right? They welcomed him is kind of the idea that John is giving. us. It's a little tongue-in-cheek when John says the Galileans welcomed him. And so that's the, at the outset of the passage, we're given this hint that there's something going on here, that Jesus is moving towards these people into this place because he recognizes that it's a place where the people are lost in insufficient faith and he wants to bring them out of it and save them from it. Are you with me? Do you understand? Fantastic. So that's what's going on. Then we find, because then the other hint in the text to us that this is about more than just the mercy of Jesus, it's about more than just the power of Jesus, even though we delight to see those things here, is the fact that in the moment of greatest need, can you imagine a moment in your life that would be a moment of greater need and desperation than the moment your, your son or daughter is on their deathbed? And you come to Jesus and you say to him, Heal my son. And Jesus' response to you, when you first read it, seems pretty callous, doesn't it? Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. In other words, he's throwing it back in the father's face that the father's just come as a desperate father begging for the life of his child. And you think to yourself, what is going on? Why, Why would you say that to this man in this moment of incredible desperation? And the reason Jesus says it And I'm so glad that the very next thing that happens is that Jesus says, go, your son will live. In other words, Jesus knows he's going to exercise mercy. He knows he's going to save him, but he knows he needs to save someone else too. He needs to save this father from insufficient faith. He doesn't just need to save this son from physical death. See, the first point, if you grab your sermon notes, the first thing we see about insufficient faith in this text now, it's my best argument for why this text is actually about insufficient faith, something more than we probably get at first glance. The first thing we see about insufficient faith is that it's more dangerous than even physical death. Insufficient faith is more dangerous than even insufficient, uh, sorry, insuffi- insuff- insufficient faith is more dangerous than even physical death. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, right? Where he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell in other words the position of our soul before god is of greater importance than even sustaining our physical lives that's the first thing we see about insufficient faith is it's more dangerous to us than even the physical loss of life or the loss of one we love and hold dear we need to recognize the importance Jesus makes no bones about that fact. It's why he is so intentional to point out this issue in the moment of great desperation for this father and even while he's gonna heal him. Jesus could have said nothing, right? If he intended to heal the boy, why throw this back in the face of the father? Why not just say, when the father says, heal my son, he says, go, your son will live. He could have just cut straight to that. Go, your son will live. And the boy would have been healed, and all would have been well. And this story would have been just about Jesus' amazing power to heal from a distance. He didn't even have to be present with him. And it would have been about Jesus' amazing mercy to heal this boy. And yet he takes the moment to say, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, to point us to something else, the danger of insufficient faith. So the question comes to us, church, when's the last time we took stock of our faith? How often do we sit before the Lord and say, examine me? Examine the nature of my faith. Is it sufficient? Is it sincere? Is it real? Leads us to the next point I want to show us from this story. What is insufficient faith? Let's ask that question. Now, there's a couple things biblically. Throughout the course of the Bible, we see a couple of markers of the difference between insufficient faith, faith that saves, and sufficient faith. Or, sorry, insufficient faith that doesn't save and sufficient faith that does save. We see a couple markers of that throughout Scripture. And there's one in particular that's in this story. There's one that's pointed out in this story that I want to point you to. It's not the only one throughout the Bible, but it is the one in this one. Now, here's, here's what I would say the difference is that's painted for us in this story insufficient faith never moves past love of God's power to love for God Himself. Insufficient faith never moves past a love of God's power into love for God himself. Now here's the interesting thing. The Gospel of John says that the whole book is recording all the miracles of Jesus and all the words of Jesus so that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. That's John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. So we know that's the whole point of the Gospel. He's telling us all these stories about Jesus' power so that we would come to believe. So then we encounter this and we think, wait, Jesus seems to be teaching us that there's a kind of love for his power that is insufficient and we have to get past it. But John is using power to show us that Jesus is the Christ. So how do I make sense of that? Well, here's here's how you make sense of it. Jesus' power and loving Jesus' power is not bad. It's just not an end unto itself. Jesus' power is meant to show you who Jesus is so that you would love him, not just his power. Does that make sense? He wants you to get beyond just loving what he can do for you. He wants you to love him for himself. That's really what Jesus is getting at when he's pointing out that they need signs and wonders and that the Galileans saw what he had done at the feast and so they, they loved and welcomed him. He's saying, you love my power, you love what I can do, you love what I can do for you, And this is going to become a theme throughout the Gospel of John. We're going to see it again in John chapter 6. You love that, but what you need to love is me. What you need to love is me for me. Now listen, power is supposed to be a doorway to faith and not the center of faith. What that means is we shouldn't disdain or dismiss that we love when God moves in power on our behalf. Should we love it when God uses his power on our behalf? Absolutely. We should delight in it. We should love it. We should ask him to do it. We should call on him to bring it about. We should pray regularly and seek it out. His power moving on our behalf is a good thing and it's a demonstration of his love and his mercy and his goodness. All of that is true. But all of that is meant to point you to a love for him. Now, here's another reason why it can be hard to distinguish between the two. It can be hard to distinguish in my heart whether I love God because of his power used for me or whether I love him for himself. That can be hard to distinguish. And one of the reasons it can be hard to distinguish is because all the atri- of all the attributes of God, power is one of his primary attributes. Power is part of who he is. So in order to love God, I need to love that he is powerful, right? I don't love God in spite of him being powerful. Part of what I love about God is that he is powerful. And if I don't love that, I'm failing to love something that is true about God, that he possesses all power. That his power is infinite without without measure. It never ceases, it never ends. It is infinite in length, in depth, in breadth. That is who God is. And so to love God for who he is, I must love his what? Power, right? But I must not love just his power. I must love that his power has ushered me into a relationship with him. And he is what I want. The greatest act of power that's ever been demonstrated on the face of the earth is the cross of Jesus bearing all the sin of the world. It's not just an act of humility, it's an act of great power. Do you understand that? To bear the sin of all humankind and the wrath of God poured out upon you without being utterly destroyed is an act of great power on the part of Jesus. Do we understand that? And then to rise from the grave in victory over death, no one has ever or will ever perform an act of greater power than this. He is immensely powerful. And that act has purchased for us, that powerful act of Jesus has purchased for us eternal life. For those who believe, do we delight in Jesus's power? Yes. But what do you love about what that power has purchased for you? Do you love that it's freed you from an eternity in hell? Or do you love that it's purchased for you a relationship with God? Do you know what you got? You didn't just get a free ticket out of hell, when Jesus died and you came to faith in him, you received relationship with God. That's really what Jesus is trying to point us to when he talks about insufficient faith versus sufficient faith. He's saying, you have God himself because of the power of Jesus. So don't fall in love with the power. Fall in love with the power has purchased for you God himself. I think we understand this intuitively uh, this idea that god calls us to love him sufficient faith loves god for god not just god for what he does for us i think we understand it intuitively imagine for a moment that your your boyfriend your girlfriend your spouse says to you why do you love me that's an important moment by the way if that happens later all right now how do you answer do you answer i love you because you cook for me i love you because you make money for me i love you because You clean up around the house after me. I love you because, fill in the blank, right? How's that gonna go? Poorly, thank you. Somebody actually acknowledged that. Yeah, poorly. That's not how you answer that question. You know how you answer that question? I love you because you're kind and gracious and generous and servant-hearted. And yes, all the things that you do for me display who you are, but I don't love the things you do for me. I love you because of all that you are, right? We get that intuitively, don't we? That's gonna go much better, by the way. Consider yourself coached up, all right, for later on today. So it can be hard to distinguish between the two. Love of God's power, because that's part of who he is, Or love of God himself, but that's why we press into it. Now, God's power, whenever it's exercised on your behalf or on my behalf, is always aimed, always, at giving us a clearer picture of God himself. His power is never exercised on your behalf, to heal, to save, to to bring you into something you've needed or desired. It's never exercised on your behalf just so you would get the thing that that power purchases for you. It's always meant to give you a clearer picture of God himself so that you would love and treasure him. Why? Because God is not in the business of giving you things that help you love his power more than you love him. He is always aiming to help you see him more clearly so that you might love him more fully, so that you might have sufficient faith. Jesus does not want to give you insufficient faith or move you towards that. He wants to move you towards sufficient faith. This is one of the reasons why suffering and trial are so valuable a tool in the life of a Christian. Now, we don't seek out suffering, we don't invite God or ask him to give us suffering. But when suffering comes, the the tool that it is in God's hand is that it enables us to see whether our faith is of the type that is sufficient or whether it is of the type that is insufficient. And really and truly, suffering is one of the few things that can reveal and pull back the curtain on our heart to show us what kind of faith is truly there. Because the question is always in front of us, Will I still love God when he doesn't move in power on my behalf? Is he enough for me when he chooses not to heal, when he chooses not to rescue, when he chooses not to give the thing I've asked him for? And it's not until that moment comes that we really and truly know whether our faith is of the type that is sufficient to save Because sufficient faith says, even though God may not have moved in power to bring about this victory on my behalf over this great difficulty or over whatever this thing is, even though he has not moved, I still choose to follow him. I still choose to delight in him because he never promised to give me that thing, but he did promise me this. He would be with me. And friends, I want you to know and cling to, no matter what the suffering I cannot guarantee you he will remove it or move in power on your behalf to take you out from underneath it. But what I can promise you is he is with you in it. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will not crush you. He will go before you and he comes behind you. He hymns you in with great love and affection. And I promise you that if you have the kind of faith that says I love Him, for who He is, not just what He can do for me, that you will find Him to be a sustaining force for you in those moments. He will be enough. He will be a treasure to you. And you will be able to do what James says, to count it all joy. You encounter trials of various kinds. It's not an easy word, but it certainly is a true one. And it's why suffering is such a valuable tool in the hands of God, in the life of followers of Jesus. The last thing where we're gonna spend the rest of our time is what does it look like or how does Jesus save us from insufficient faith? So we've seen that insufficient faith is dangerous, more dangerous than even physical death. And we've seen Insufficient faith is marked by not moving past a love for God's power into a love for God himself. And so the last question we have to ask is, well, how does Jesus save us from insufficient faith? And this text offers two ways that Jesus does that. There are two identifiers in the passage of how Jesus saves us from insufficient faith. The first one is that he uses our community, our faith community, our church, as a mirror for us to show us if insufficient faith is in us. That's the first thing we see. Now, we may just read right past this in the story because there is a little bit of helpfulness in knowing uh, knowing a little bit of the original language here. When you see in verse 48 that Jesus says, unless you, to the Father, he says, unless you believe, you will, unless you see signs and wonders, sorry, you will not believe, right? Verse 48, that you there is a second person plural. So it's the good old Southern phrase, y'all. Okay, that's what he's just said. Unless y'all believe see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. So what I've just proven to you is that Southern English is worth speaking. <laughs> All right? Or if you're like a weird Western PA or what is it, Ewens? Ewans, Use guys, right? Whatever your second person plural is, y'all is the superior version of that. I'm just gonna tell you, it's a great little contraction. Unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. My, my Texas really comes out when I say y'all unless y'all see it. But here's the point, okay? It's not just a little grammar lesson, I promise, okay? The reason it's important to know that he's speaking in the second person plural is he's not just talking to the Father. He's talking to everyone that's gathered there. In other words, he's looking at a community of people and he's saying, this is true of y'all. You reflect back to one another that you have insufficient faith. You should see that because you, see it, because you see it in one another. He's not just saying it to the Father. He's saying it to all of them. So here's an interesting reality, right? Is that one, let's recognize something Jesus is doing here. Jesus confronts us in our insufficient faith. If you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the things I want to help you understand is he, he is happy to confront you. We in our day and age, for some reason, have wanted to round off the sharp corners of the things that Jesus said and did and make them all really palatable. We want to make them all smooth and easy and make Jesus our buddy. But the thing that you need to recognize is that, yes, Jesus calls himself our friend, and that is so merciful of him, but he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And he will not have the sharp edges of his truth and the things he taught us and said and did, he will not have them rounded off to make himself more palatable for you and me. He declares and confronts us with who he is, and that's exactly what he's doing here to this community of people. He is confronting them with his very nature, and he's saying, you have an insufficient faith, and I'm gonna confront you in it, because I don't just wanna heal a boy, I wanna save a group of people. I'm trying to heal more than one person here, is basically what Jesus is getting at. One spiritually and one physically, or one group spiritually and one physically. See, that's what Jesus is up to here. So expect him to confront you. Expect him to confront you. Jesus is not in the business of making you feel good about yourself all the time. That's just not who he is. I listened to a pastor say the other day that we need to leave behind certain biblical teachings because people just don't like those teachings and because they don't like them, they won't come to church. And I don't know what he's aiming at But I thought the point of people coming to church to gather was to worship God for who he really is. I thought that was the point. That he would reveal himself to us and that we would submit to who he shows himself to be in his word, not who we want him to be. Jesus is happy to confront you. Now listen, Romans tells us it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I love that. Because Jesus, even in his confrontation of us, is doing something really what? kind. If you're lost and you don't know it, if you're blind and you don't know it, how good it is for Jesus to point out that these are the reality of your circumstances and that he is able to do something about it. The second thing about our faith community that mirrors back for us, something is really good here, I think, that we learn is that if we want to know the nature of our faith, a helpful tool is to look at our church family and ask, what do I see in my church family? And they're a mirror reflecting back to me, perhaps the insufficiencies in my own faith. So we can see this just at the level of patterns of sin in our own life. If we look at our church and see legalism or licentiousness or stinginess or fear or racism or sexual sin, we will do well to ask whether our church is simply reflecting back to us the sin in our own heart. We will do well to ask that question. You know how this works, right? Where you are bothered by somebody? Man, that person talks a lot, and then you realize, "Oh, wait a minute. What I don't like in them is the very thing what?" that exists in me. Have you had this experience? This is something of what the church is supposed to be for one another, a mirror that reflects back the very things that we find in our own heart. But it works not just at the level of sin patterns in us, it works at the very level of our faith, the very nature of our faith. If I look at my church family, if I find in my church family shallow, unaffectionate worship, Or perhaps worship that's overly fascinated with God's supernatural displays of power but doesn't seem interested in God himself, only the supernatural displays that he might bring about. If that's what I find in my church family, my point is not to look at my church family and go, y'all need to get it together. The point is to look at my church family and go, that reflects upon me. Is there anything in me as I see what is taking place among my people? And the point is not leave then. The point is to say, these are my people. These are the places where perhaps we're demonstrating insufficiency of faith. And does that reflect something back to me that is true in me and of me? Your church family helps you see like a mirror the sin in your own heart. Do you follow what I'm getting out there? That's one of the first ways Jesus looks to save us from insufficient faith is by making us a part of a people, by making us a part of a church, that reflects back to us some of our own insufficiencies. The second thing that we find in this text about how Jesus saves us from insufficient faith is that he gives us opportunities to trust him before we see him work. Opportunities to trust him before we see him work. Let's go back to our story again and think about what takes place here. It's interesting that Jesus chooses not to go and be physically present with this boy and heal him. At almost all other points, Jesus does that. But here, he does not. And Jesus is always intentional in everything he does. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, why did Jesus just choose to speak that this boy would be healed and heal him from a 20-mile distance rather than to go with the father? At other times, he goes along when somebody comes to get him and asks for his healing power. He says, sure, and he comes. But in this case, he doesn't. Why is that the case? After he's confronted the father and said in the whole community and said, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, Then what's the next thing that happens? The father begs again. He says, please come and heal my child before he dies. And Jesus' very next words are, go, your son will live. Here's what I think is happening. Jesus is giving the father an opportunity to trust him. Think about being the father there. If you're Jesus, you know what's just happened. The boy's good. I made him good. If you're the father, what do you have to do in that moment? You have a choice to make. Do I continue to say, no, I'm not leaving without you. Come with me. Or do you say, I will trust that what you've said is true, and I will leave and go home? Which does the father choose? The latter. One of the things that's really telling about the meaning of this text is that there's a kind of faith, you watch the father's faith through the story and becomes the mirror of insufficient faith moving from insufficiency to sufficiency for us, Because there's some kind of belief that he has when he shows up. He believes Jesus has some kind of power to heal, yes? Otherwise, why come? So he's shown up. There's a kind of belief that's in him. Jesus confronts that. And then when he tells the father to go, your son will be well, we hear the father believed Jesus. So there's a kind of belief that's beginning to take root. And now the father goes. What's happening is by, ch- by forcing this father to take a step of trusting him, take a step of faith before he can see the demonstration of his power on his behalf. By doing that, he's tilling the soil of this father's heart to move him out of insufficient faith and into sufficient faith. Why else would we find after the father gets home, finds out, well, he's not even home yet, the servants find him and say, your boy is better. And he says, when did he start to get better? And he knows that it's at the exact moment that Jesus had said he would get better. And so he recognizes Jesus used his power on my behalf. And then we find after that, and the father believed. So why would we say the father believed again when we just heard he believed when he left when Jesus told him to go? What we're meant to understand is that the father is growing out of one type of belief that's insufficient and into another kind of belief that is absolutely sufficient. And the final marker of the sufficient faith of this father is that it said, and he believed and his whole what? Household with him. In other words, his faith multiplied. It created a legacy. It drew others into sufficient faith, which is another marker of the difference between insufficient faith and sufficient faith. See, this father's journey, we're meant to see it all along. What's happening is Jesus is saying, I'm going to, and he will often do this, I'm gonna save you from insufficient faith, faith that loves my power more than it loves me. I'm gonna save you from that By forcing you to trust me, I'm gonna push you to trust me before you see me move in power on your behalf. There's no guarantee when he does that in our lives that we will get the demonstration of power that we're hoping for. There's no guarantee of that, but often you will find that it is true that before he demonstrates his power on your behalf to save, to deliver, to heal, whatever it may be, that there's some way in which he says, step out by faith. Why does he do that? Not so that we can pat ourselves on the back when he heals and go, I earned that one by stepping out in faith, good for me. No, because when we do that, what we're saying to the fathers, I trust you, I love you, and you till the soil of my heart with this step of faith. And as you do that, then I trust what you will grow out of that soil in my heart is a sufficient kind of faith that loves you. And now when you demonstrate your power to heal, to save, to deliver from the suffering, when you bring that about, what, what pops up in me is not awesome. I love that God showed his power on my behalf. It's Awesome, God, you showed your power on my behalf and I'm amazed by you. And I love you more deeply. Go back to what we said before. When he demonstrates his power on our behalf, it's always towards what end that we would love him more, not that we would love his power more. And that's exactly where the father finds himself and his whole household is delivered. And then we're told this is the second miracle that Jesus did after coming out of Jerusalem and into Galilee. In other words, there's seven miracles that we're gonna see through the book of John. And Jesus, they, they, they get pointed out. And the reason they get pointed out is because John is telling, telling us, pay attention. There's something new here for you to learn from this miracle, different from what you learned from the last miracle. Everyone is not just, wow, Jesus is powerful. We certainly learn that, but we learn something deeper and newer about who God is, how he displayed himself in his son, in the Christ And in seeing that, we treasure God himself. That's his aim for us today, that we would be a people, not of insufficient faith, but of sufficient faith, a people who love and treasure him, not just his power on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, oh, how we want to learn to delight in all that you are. We do love your power, We love your ability to heal and to save. We love your resurrection power. We delight in that because that's who you are. But we don't just want to love you with hearts that say, I love what you do for me. We love you because of who you are. Your goodness and your mercy and your greatness and your power and your justice. We love your wrath. We love everything about you that you have displayed yourself to be. It's all good, every part of it, every piece. And we say that to you not because you need us to say it to you. You know that you're good, but we say it because we want you to hear it from us, your children who love you. Help us to love you more. Help us to love you rightly. Cut out the pieces of our heart that love uh, selfishly. Cut out the pieces of us that love you only for Minor things and not for who you are. Change and shape us. We ask you to do it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand, let's sing together.